Thank you so much, Harakon. Good evening, everyone. Uh, we're approaching uh, Shavuos. Uh, we're approaching Matan Torah. Interesting uh, medrash that uh, when the Bnei Yisrael heard Hashem speak, they retreated 12 miles or Yudbe's meal, whatever that distance was. And Malachim had to come down and bring them back to House Sinai. I think that part of the reason may have been when Moshe Rabbeinu told the people, Shem is going to come down and he's going to speak to you. Everybody was all fired up with enthusiasm. Kodesh is going to come down and we're going to hear such enormous spiritual messages. And they were ready for this great revelation of spirituality. And Hashem tells them, Lo Tignov, don't be a thief. Lo Tiltzach, don't kill. Lo Tignov, don't be an adulterer. And they said, who are you talking to? This is what we came to hear. This is what you think of us. And so they ran back 12 miles. And the Malachan had to drag him back. No, you have to listen to this. You have to listen to this. In the introduction, you were told that there's something that I may be especially equipped to give some messages. There's some truth to that. Because probably what I can tell you could be told by any rov, by any mezgir in the yeshiva. The problem is that sometimes when you hear a rov or a mezgir in yeshiva give these kinds of messages, you say, what do you want? He's, he's talking party line. That's what he's going to talk. That's all he knows. Well, you can't accuse me of that. First of all, I'm not interested in party line. Secondly, uh, I've been in a lot of places. One of the Mephashim cite the Posik that Silma Mela says, Tov lishmoa garas chocham melishmoya meish shomea shirkisilin. It's better to hear the reprimand of a wise person. And the translation is rather than to listen to the songs of fools. So he pointed out that's not what the Posik says. If that's what the Posik wanted to say, it would have said, What the Posik says is, it's best to hear the reprimand of a wise person if he was also a person who heard the Shirk Silim, a person who also heard the other kinds of songs, the other kinds of messages. Uh, so I want to tell you, I've heard them all. Whatever you want to come up with in secular studies, I won't say that I'm that well versed, but I'm certainly not ignorant of them. So, uh, I'm a little bit different than a Rebbe 
was a shiver on my skiach. And that's why I think that I'd like you to listen to what I have to say tonight. And it's not because of gaiva, because of vanity that I say, that what I tell you tonight may be the most important thing you'll ever hear the rest of your life. That's how important it is. You know, we're talking about adolescence. So first let me just say a word about adolescence, a very, very strange period of life. The Torah doesn't understand it. In Torah we have two phases of life. A person is a cotton, is a minor, and then at one moment, there's a transition for a young man on his 12th, at the end of his 12th year, and a young woman at the end of her 11th year, and there's an immediate transition with one moment from day to night where a cotton becomes a godo, a minor becomes an adult. The reason this is important was because I was once called to the emergency room many years ago. And there was a young man sitting there, and I sat down next to him, and I said, uh, can you tell me what your problem is? So he sat there silently. So I asked him again, and again he said nothing. I said, you know, I'll sit here with you a few moments, and when you feel comfortable enough to tell me a little bit about your problem, I'll listen. So a few moments went by, and then he said, I'm a nothing. I said, why do you say you're a nothing? He says, well, what am I? I'm not a child. I'm not an adult. I'm a nothing. And it dawned upon me how correct he was. Nature doesn't know adolescence. In primitive people, there is no adolescence. There's puberty rights where a minor becomes an adult. And Lahabdal Vavdalas and Torah, at the age of Bas Mitzvah or Bam Mitzvah, a child becomes an adult. And the significance of that is that for a child, the child can't be responsible. Parents are responsible for the child. An adult, an adult is responsible for oneself. So civilization came along and had to create this monstrosity called adolescence where a person is not a child. Parents can't be responsible for him, he's too big. I can't control him. And yet, can you hold him responsible for his own? No, he's not an adult yet. So he's a nothing. And he's not responsible for himself. And the problem is that not only is this a period of irresponsibility, so they had to set up with a whole new system of juvenile law, you know, which is also very confusing. And to make it even worse, you know, <laughs> depending where you are, it depends when you become an adult and for what. For some things, uh, for driver's license, you may have to be 16. Or maybe across the border in another state, you have to be 18, right? And for marriage, yeah, in one state it may be 18, the other is 21. 
in terms of getting care for yourself medically or refusing care medically in some state that's age 14. So this whole hodgepodge of confusions that young people have no idea who they are, what they are, what's expected of them. And what's even worse, there's no responsibility. And what is particularly bad about that is that once a person has experienced a period of no responsibility, right, he, may never he may never recover from it. And so that even when he's 45, he may still not bear full responsibility because there was once a time in his life when he wasn't responsible. And that's the problem that civilization has created with adolescence. Okay. But in addition to everything else, we now have a problem with a very serious problem. And it's talking about the temptations that we face as adolescents and the temptations that we face as adults. Uh, we have the ability to resist temptations. Here's the Yetzirah And everybody has a Yetzirah. You have one, I have one. My friends, I want you to know something. If you don't remember anything else from what I say tonight, please remember this. This is not, not the same world that it once was. It's not the same world that I grew up in. It's not the same world that some of you grew up in. And even though some of you are very young, the world changes from day to day. And I wish you could say that it changes for the better. You know, the Torah tells us that Noah was a tzaddik. Tzaddik tamim, a perfect tzaddik. That when he came out of the ark, he planted a vineyard and got drunk. The question is, how does a perfect tzaddik allow himself to get drunk? And so the Tzvah says that Noah knew how much he could consume, how much wine he could consume without affecting him negatively. And so when he came out of the Teva, when he came out of the ark, he went back to use his usual quantity of wine. What he didn't realize was, it's not the same world I used to live in. There was a marble. The world has changed drastically. And in this new world, the old rules don't apply. We may have to look at what kind of rules we have to have every day. Because the world isn't the same today as it was yesterday. You have any question about whether it's a significant change? Let me show you something, my friends. that I dominated when I was a child. The 25 Sifre Torahs and the Kodesh was open. Non-Jews don't steal Sifre Torahs. Non-observant Jews don't buy stolen Sifre Torahs. Who are the Ganovamen? Who are the fences? It's our own people. Our own Shemotayra Mitzvahs. A sad, sad reflection. But that lock on the Yom Kodesh is a powerful, powerful message and don't forget it. It's not the same world. 
So our parents were shown with Torah mitzvahs, our grandparents, and what they did was not enough for today's world. They didn't have locks on the Yom So let me get to a, the specific issue that I feel is so important to address. And that is the problem that our young people, as well as older people, are getting hooked and addicted to the filth of the pornography on the internet. And it destroys them morally, it destroys families. And it is a severe addiction. You know, there are some drugs that you may have to use several times before you get addicted to them. There's some drugs that the first time that you take it, you're hooked. And when I've got to tell you about pornography and accept my word as a psychiatric authority, if you're sitting at your internet and you have a pop-up of an indecent scene of nudity, you'll have exactly three milliseconds to shut that off. And if you sit and watch it for several seconds, you're hooked. That's how fast it happens. And it's a cancer. You know, I think that what you'd really like me to tell you is to give you some solutions. Here's what you do. Do A, B, C, and D, and you'll be saved. You'll protect your children. I wish I could tell you. I wish I had those answers. I wish I had those solutions. You know, a patient comes into a doctor's office and the Shalom has found that the patient has a severe type of cancer and it has spread to other organs. And the doctor says, uh, look, this is going to require a very drastic treatment. It's going to require surgery, and it's going to require chemotherapy, and it's going to require radiation. You know, all of those treatments have can be very, very distressing and very, very uncomfortable. And the person may say, but isn't there anything I can do to escape the misery of, the, of those treatments? The doctor says, no. Your life is a stake. You want to save your life, this is what you got to do. No, nobody wants to be miserable, so people look for easy ways out. Some of you may remember, uh, just a while back, uh, people were running to Mexico to get Laetril. That was the miracle drug for choosing, curing cancer. Well, that's long gone. But every once in a while, there's still some kind of cure that people come up with. And I can't blame them for looking for an easy way out. There just isn't any. And when if a person's life is at stake, he's going to have to decide whether he wants to save his life or doesn't he. And if he wants to save his life, he's going to have to take the miseries of the treatment. There is no easy way out. And there is no immunity. You know, as I look around, I wish that 
there were more people here who could have experienced what I experienced back in the 1940s. Because you see, before there was the salt vaccine for polio, summer was a frightening season. And once there was two cases of polio in the city of two million people, all the swimming pools were shut down. Children were not, uh, not permitted, they were not allowed, the parents didn't allow them to go to theaters, the places where people assembled. Child developed a backache, they ran with him to the doctor, the fear was that it might be polio. I remember that. No one was fool enough to say, my child is immune, he's not going to get it. There was no immunity. Everybody realized that every child is vulnerable, and there was a fright, there was a panic. That's where we are today. That's where we are today with this plague of pornography. It's a cancer. It kills, it destroys families, and there is no immunity. Unless anyone think, thinks I can handle it and I won't let it uh, affect my behavior. I can tell you what a Mashgir of Yeshiva cannot, because I see the cases. It's a slippery slope. Many years ago, I, this letter came to Hamadiya. <coughs> And I have to read it to you word for word because it's that important. The writer says, I'm going to reveal something to you I've never discussed with a living soul and thought I never would. Your answer could save my life. More important than to read your answer, I'm writing this so that it can be printed its entirety and read because there are hundreds of people in my situation. I'm a 21-year-old yeshiva bocha. I went to prominent American yeshivas all my life. I'm now learning in a famous yeshiva gedola in Yisrael. Modesty aside, I was at the top of my classes in shiurim, widely respected by my friends in Rabbeim. I planned to learn many years and go into chinuch. I would find the perfect shidduch quickly, some rush yeshiva's daughter, raise a beautiful family and spread nachas all around. A perfect life I waited. I was the from community's model son. As far as anybody knows, all this is still true. When I was in the first year of Ismetlis, at age 16, my parents brought the internet into our home and my secret life began. To condense the story, I was very quickly hooked on Devorim Asurim and forbidden pictures. Let's not kid ourselves. Like every person on this planet, I was always curious. And all the blockers my parents set up fell away quickly without their knowledge. Like any person that becomes addicted to something, I quit many times. Once for a whole year. For months, many times. I buried my head in the toilet in order to save myself as best as I could. But it always came back. Going against everything I'd ever learned, I continued. I slowly trained myself to shut God out whenever I wanted to. And this led me to more and more serious Averis of Hamanul 
without going into detail, suffice it to say that I'm terribly ashamed of myself because I am not a loyal Jew anymore. But all this is secret. I allow none of it to show through. As far as I want, as much as I want to help myself, I realize I can't, but I can't get help either. I can bring myself to discuss my dark side with no one. The only difference between me and others who went off the derech is that because I'm afraid, to pe I'm afraid to face the people who would lose respect for me, I pretend to toe the line. And therefore, I am unhelpable. Hundreds, maybe thousands of yeshiva guys are seriously addicted to a secret life such as mine. I know. I see it. It takes one to know one. You can imagine what kind of rocky futures are awaiting us. I read all the Jewish Observer articles on the evils of the internet. I want this letter to be published to say that you have no idea how prevalent and far-reaching the effect already has been and will continue to be. What you do see is less than the tip of the iceberg. My question for you is, how do I get out? Is this a behavioral addiction that only a psychologist could help? Can I turn to a Rebbe and avoid involving my parents? Or is there a way I can help myself? Without being overdramatic, you are reading the last gasp of a drowning soul. I had no answer for this young man. Because this letter was written about eight or nine years ago. There wasn't anybody to whom I could send him who knew what to do about it. Right now there is a website, Guard Your Eyes, which has a great deal of material and a great deal of help. And has saved hundreds of people that I already know of. You can't get rid of the internet. It's here to stay. And all the filters, I think the filters are extremely important. They're particularly helpful as a preventative. But uh, once a person is addicted, like this young man said, all the filters, can, anybody savvy enough to run a computer can run around the filters. And the problem is a cancer because it spreads. It destroys families. Wives will say, I can't trust them. I, I feel betrayed. Has no idea the number of families that are, are being broken up. And it's not only young men that are caught into this horrible condition, it's also older people. One young colonel man said, I visited my father in law's home. My father is a well known Torah supporter. He's a Talmud Chocham, he's a pillar of the community. I asked, could I use his computer? And I was horrified to see what it was that he was looking at. How do I respect that man? How do I teach my children to respect their grandfather? And it isn't only a masculine thing. There are young women who are uh, caught in the pornography as well. It does not show any respect. And you'll say, well look, all it is is a tithe. Let him learn Sif Gamosa, let him learn Mesilis Gisholem, let him learn Rashid Chachma. 
Then we learn my title. I'll tell you why it won't work, my friends. You know, other Marisha, we are told, had no Yitzhahara. Well, then how come he had the Chet Eitzhadas? How come he had the sin? There was no Yitzhahara. Because there are two kinds of Yitzhahara. There's the instinctual Yitzhahara, which is within every individual. I have one, you have one, sir. And then there's another Yitzhahara called the Sotan. And the Sotan is a Malach HaKadosh Baruch who created with the mission to make people do sins. That's not the Yitzhahara. That's the soul. I'm going to tell you a Gemara. It's a frightening Gemara. End of Kedusha. Rabbi Akiva used to provoke uh, people who were, had given in to their tithes or had given in to their lust and had given the temptations. And uh, uh, he used to mock them. So that Sultan said, I'll show you. Gemara says that the Sultan disguised himself, transformed himself into an attractive woman, sitting on the top of a tall palm tree, and seduced Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva started to climb up the palm tree to reach her. But before he could get to her, Hashem told the Sultan, stop. Who are we talking about? Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva who when they raked his skin and tore his flesh, right? and tortured him, and he was screaming, Shema Yisrael? Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva couldn't resist this seduction? The answer is, Rabbi Akiva could have easily overcome his Yetzirah. That was no problem. But this was not the Yetzirah. This was a Malach. This was the Sotan. This was an angel an evil angel with extraordinary superhuman powers. This was not the Yetzirah. And only HaKadosh Baruch Hu could stop the Sotan. Let me tell you something, my friends. The inside of the internet, there is a Sotan, not a Yetzirah. And learning Musr is not going to stop that addiction. Because you're not dealing with the Yetzirah, you're dealing with the Sultan. And you say, oh my God, are you naive? The Sultan's in the internet. Trust me, I'm telling you, the Sultan's in the internet and learning Musr is not going to stop it. You're going to have to have a force much stronger than that. That's the cancer that we're up against. You know, I don't understand when you're learning about the time that you see that there are some conditions that were two or three cases of this condition in the community, and the leaders of the community, the Gdolim, declare a fast day, and they blow shoifa, and they're special tefillahs. I don't know why it hasn't been done yet. I don't know why there hasn't been a fast day declared and blowing shoifa because of the kinds of kalbonas, the kinds of victims that we're losing every day.
Nobody's immune. There is no immunity. Remember, the other Kurdish is locked. To prevent whom? I have had cases of people who were the pillars of the community. Something like that we would think of that they're like Lamed Wolf Tzadikim and have fallen into the trap because the Sultan got to them. So that's where we are, my friends. Uh, 30 years ago, that Sultan wasn't around. And you had Yitzhak, but didn't have the Sultan. And today we have to realize that the Sultan is endangering every one of us and every one of our children. So, there's other stories that I can tell you. I only get about three calls a week that come directly to me. And many other calls go to Guard Your Eyes to the website. And incidentally, it's important to look at the website at Guard Your Eyes, G-U-A-R-D-U-R-E-Y-E-S dot com. And to, to hear the stories, first-hand stories of people who have suffered. And Baruch Hashem, that there are people who have taken recovery seriously and they have come back. But the danger, the danger is there, and it's great. There's other things that happen in adolescence. Uh, we have now a, a new addiction. You know, I was accustomed to alcohol and drug addiction, gambling addiction. Oh, by the way, gambling addiction is hitting the reform community again like a cancer. And youngsters are stealing from their parents in order to gamble. It's our kids, our own kids. We would never think, we would never accuse them. We have to be open-minded and realize it can happen anywhere. It can happen to the best of families, and it does. And I don't know why some people are more prone to addiction and others not. But if a youngster gets hooked on uh, gambling, right, there is no stopping him. So new addictions come up all the time. There's youngsters who are addicted to computer games. There's people who are addicted to computer even without the pornography. And there are people who are addicted to texting. A new machla, a new addiction. You say, oh, come on, get off it. It's not an addiction, so the kids are texting. The average kid texts 100 times a day. He has to delete the text, the, the iPhone, three times a day because it's overloaded. But 100 times a day is pretty average for a kid. But it has caused kids to get up in the middle of the night and, and, and text. Eleven youngsters are killed every day because of texting while driving. Frightening statistic. Every day, eleven young people are killed texting, driving because they're texting. And then we find that a school bus driver was the driving while texting, and a pilot of an airplane was texting while flying the flight. Three hundred people. Their lives were dependent on him, and he's texting while driving. 
And I believe that's because it's an addiction that can't be stopped. Why do I call it an addiction? Because when a from young man who comes from a wonderful from family okay, and is a Shema Shabbos and if he texts on Shabbos it's because he's addicted. And these kids are texting on Shabbos. And of course, once that, once that starts bad enough in itself, who knows where it's going to end up. Oh no, not my kid. Don't, don't walk around with these blinders. It happens to all of us. We're all vulnerable. To all the evils of the world, we're all vulnerable regardless of how firm we may be. Regardless of our how cautious we are with glut kosher meat and the whole of Yisroon and Pasyoshan and whatever else you want to say. All these wonderful hummus are fine, right? but they're not enough. It's not going to stop kids from the pornography and it's not going to stop kids from becoming addicted to texting. Something else has to happen, something else. And it's not going to be easy. So, what do I suggest to you? Yeah, there are little things that you can do, but there are minor things. I mean, you can insist that if there's an internet the computer in the house, that it be placed in the dining room where everybody can see it. Nobody has any private access to it. Uh, you can set up web covers so that anything that uh, one watches on, on, uh, on one's computer uh, is registered by another person, by a monitor. Someone can tell what one is watching. Those are little things that can help. I visited a relative of mine, very fine, wonderful, wonderful young shaman, wonderful young man. And I wanted to see my email, uh, so I asked him, can I use your computer for the email? He says, yeah, I'll get my wife to unlock it for you. He has to have the wife unlock the computer for him. That's a wonderful message to his kids. He doesn't trust himself, and he shouldn't. So these are the kinds of things, some of the things that we can do. Uh, but, you know, these are, these are minor things. And of course, filters, find the, uh, the, the most effective filter than you can. There are many of them. Some are more effective than others. And you may have to give up some access to the computer because of your filters. All of this is the prevention of addiction. Once addiction has occurred, forget it. You're going to have to have something more than a filter to stop it. All right, so what can you do? What you, what you can do is start modeling for the kids. You see, you think that I have a Yitzhahaz like anybody else? That I grew up with all kinds of drives like every other person? But when my father disciplined me, he had one thing that he always said when I did something that he disapproved of. He would say in Yiddish, 
that doesn't suit you. You're too good for that. Don't corrupt yourself with doing something that's beneath your dignity. That's what I grew up with. I grew up, my father tried to give me a feeling of Kedusha. A feeling of Kedusha that would pre prevent me from doing anything that is antagonistic to Kedusha. You know something? I don't think that even a youngster who is caught up in pornography, I don't think he will walk into the bathroom carrying a siddha or a chumash. He'll leave it outside the bathroom. Why? You don't take a chumash or a siddha into the bathroom. Why? Because it's kedusha. It's disrespectful. Can you imagine what it would be like if a child, a young person, had about himself a feeling that he is Kodosh? You know, it may be distasteful, like surgery and radiation and, and uh, chemotherapy. But I don't believe there's any other solution. If we want to save our children, from the evils, the many evils, not only pornography, but from the many evils that society is rampant with in this crazy age. We're going to have to have an attitude of Kedusha. Now how do you do that? Well, why don't we open up the Shulchan and look at the very first chapter, the very first, the very first opening of the Shulchan where the Shulchan says, A person doesn't behave when he is alone, privacy, as he would behave if he was in the presence of Hulifne Melech Godo. He wouldn't behave the way he would if he were standing in the presence of a great king. He would not speak the way he would. He would not dress the way he would. He would not act the way he would. His behavior would be totally different. You know, the Chofetz Chaim was once on, on, on a trip and the, wagon, the, the coach driver stopped off one place and he said, I'm going to get some hay for the, for the, for the horse. Uh, and he said, uh, just watch, because he was going to steal some hay from, from one of the farmers, bales of hay. And he told the Chofetz Chaim, uh, keep an eye on him and see if you see, if see, anybody, see anybody watching, right, tell me. So as he went for the bale of hay, the whole time he started humming him, somebody's watching, somebody's watching. So he quickly ran back. They looked around and he said, I didn't see anybody watching. He said, yeah, God is watching. You know, if you really believe God is watching, then we act differently. So you know what our assignment is if we want to save our kids? We've got to make our homes a place of Kedusha. They say, well, how do you do that? I, don't, I can't give you all the answers, but that's our job. One of the things that we have to realize is, <laughs> when a husband and wife have a true shalom bias, the Hashem's presence is in that house. But they have to have a true shalom bias for that. Not a shalom bias 
where one is trying to control the other. There are so many homes where there is apparently a shalom bias, and I can tell you there's no shalom bias there. The husband or the wife are trying to dominate each other. There's no true harmony there. But if there could be a true shalom bias, you bring the shechin into the house and that brings kedusha into the house. I think that if our children come into a shul and they see the, converse, the conversation that goes on between people during davening, that, that takes away every remnant of kedusha that they might have had. Being the bismetish, the, the shul where there should be the imminent presence of Hashem, and you openly defy him by talking during Darwinan? Forget it. There's no Kedusha there. And even our Darwinan could be better. It's wonderful that we come to Shul and we Darwin. You know? The Darwinan take 30 minutes, maybe 35 minutes sometimes. And we spend the rest of the day doing other things that are apparently more important. Maybe if our children saw us giving some more devotion to Davinim than just to going through the words, maybe that would give them a feeling of Kedusha. Before I went to medical school, I wrote to the stipula going, and he told me, you're putting yourself in a position of danger when you're going to learn in a secular environment. And uh, you have to do some safeguards. Among the safeguards that he suggested was to learn Gemara for an hour at least, morning and night, to have a sheen and musaf every day, and on Shabbos not to look at anything but Divrei Kodesh, not to pick up a newspaper on Shabbos. You don't have to read the Weekend Times edition on Shabbos. Let the children see that Shabbos is Kedusha. It's not enough that we don't work on Shabbos, that we don't go to the job. Let them see a Kedusha on Shabbos. I love this gula of the Chovetz Chaim that the Chovetz Chaim once gave, and the whole story that I won't go into now. That on Friday noon, the table should be prepared for Shabbos and the candle should be prepared so that everybody in the family can see that we're anxious to bring in the Shabbos. We can't wait for it. That's the Kedushas of Shabbos. And we have to look for ways to increase our Kedusha because I can tell you, my friends, only when a person feels that he is so holy, that he is so Kodesh, and he doesn't want to put himself into the cesspool of pornography, only then will he be immune to it. And until we get that feeling of Kedusha, we're in great, great danger of losing our children and losing their families. And yes, what's that got to do with texting? It has to do with texting as well as with all other behaviors. Begins, what is your obligation in this world? How often do we live as though our primary goal is our whatever our obligation in this world is? We're so distracted by so many things. 
Unfortunately, there are people who don't have televisions in the house. If you do have a television in the house, it's another source of trouble. I remember television, what it was like in the 1950s, 1940s. There were some very entertaining programs. Today, if I'm stuck in a hotel and I turn on the television, if there's a ball game, I can watch for a couple of innings. And if not, I turn it off. Because it's absolutely disgusting to see what's on the television today. You know, I see people come in to the house, kiss them, zoo, zoo. Then I sit down on television and watch this garbage for an hour or two. And there is no clean television today. It's all sex and violence. And without that, there's no humor, no interest. And so I say, you know, you kiss the mezuzah and you sit down in front of television for an hour, reverse it, kiss the television, just stay by the mezuzah for a few minutes. <laughs> the, the television, I think, is unfortunately just everything on there is corruption. And I think that in a home where there is children, there should be a very, very close control on what the television is allowed to show. Now you'll say, well, will not let the children see it. Forget it, the children will know what you're looking at. Children are so bright. And the message gets through. This is what the grown-ups are looking at. That's what they're going to want. You know something, friends? If a person sits down to eat a bowl of soup, and uh, there's a fly in the soup, what's his reaction? Waiter, here, take it away. What made him think that a fly is disgusting? Probably because when he was six months old, and a six-month-old child takes everything and puts it in his mouth. And when his mother saw that the child was putting a bug in the mouth, she went into convulsion. For the next 85 years, he remembers that. What, would she, what do you think would have happened if she would have said, Oh, yeah, don't eat that bug, it's not good would not have made any kind of impression. If we want our children to believe that the stuff on TV and the stuff on the internet is repulsive and disgusting, then we have to feel that way. Not enough that we say it. We have to have a revulsive feeling. Makes me want to throw up to look at that. If you've got that kind of feeling, your kids will pick it up. It was very interesting. I talked about the youngsters who are texting on Shabbos. It's an addiction. But you know, I remember in my days, people who smoked two or three packs of cigarettes a day, a horrible, horrible addiction. And they would stash a package of cigarettes someplace in the shul. In Shabbos, after Avdola, as soon as I'm Avdola, I'm going to show how whammo, 
made a beeline for the cigarettes. But not on Shabbos. It wouldn't occur to them. How's that happen? Because somehow the feeling of Shabbos was strong enough to overcome that enormous addiction. That's where we have to go with Kedushas of Shabbos. And Shabbos has to become different. The Kedush of Shabbos has to be felt in every corner of the house. You know, there's, there's one thing that's happened that I don't know what the answer to it is. I don't know whether there's Mesiris Nefesh today for Yiddishkeit. When I grew up, I saw people who were Mesiris Nefesh. I saw people who couldn't get a job because of Shabbos. And who suffered. Uh, Baruch Hashem. Today people can get fine jobs with Shemir Shabbos. There was very little self-thing, something to, to be indulgent with. Because when I was a kid, you wanted to call you went out to the farm four o'clock in the morning. And you were grateful to have milk. No, you didn't have cheese unless you could make it yourself. And you certainly didn't have of Yisrael ice cream and whatever else is there. And now we've become, uh, Baruch Hashem, so uh, indulgent. We have everything. Chinese, Korean, Italian, all kinds of cuisine. Yeah. And that's what our life has become. A pursuit of pleasure. You see, in that kind of an atmosphere, it's going to be very, very difficult to keep our kids from uh, indulging in uh, forbidden pleasures. So it's not what we're going to do with our kids. Like I said, yeah, you can do a little thing. You can get a filter. You can make the, make the uh, thing more accessible. And by the way, if your child needs to have a phone, a cell phone, in order to be in contact with you at all times, and I can understand that, it should not be an internet accessible phone. There is no reason on God's earth why a child should have an iPhone or one of these smartphones that can give them internet accessibility. You give it to that you give that to a child and you're putting them right in the midst of lust and temptation. And the child should know, should get the feeling of Kedusha and you're doing it for his protection. These are kinds of things that you can't even put into words. Oh, look, there's so much more to talk to about what goes on with, with, with children, you know. Uh, you know, we're going to have to teach our children things that our parents didn't have to teach me. And I don't know how we picked up, how we learned about uh, sexual relations, but our parents didn't teach us because it wasn't the kind of thing that you talked about. That was years ago. Not anymore today. Kids are exposed too much. And kids have to get proper information from their parents. And it has to go by levels, you know? Things that you talk about when they're five, when they're six, when they're eight, when they're 10, when they're 12, when they're 14. There's an excellent book on intimacy for the Orthodox parents, How You Talk to Your Children, written by Sarah Diamond. Wonderful book. Every parent is obligated to read that and to realize that Ellen Kodesh is closed. It's locked. It's a different, different era, different time of our, in our history.
and the rules are different. No, our parents didn't have to teach me. My parents didn't have to teach me. I have to teach my children and my grandchildren. And it's very uncomfortable. Well, chemotherapy is very uncomfortable. But that's where it is. We like to put the burden on the yeshivas. Yeshivas are overburdened with what they're doing already. But it's unfortunate that there are children who uh, feel awkward and out of place in the yeshiva and they become the, uh, the victims very easily. If a child does not catch on right away what is going on in the Gemara and he feels left out and he feels himself living in the, living in the four walls and he feels he doesn't belong with the bright students, then that child is lost. So, we have to hope that the yeshivas will do something to let every child know that the child is kodesh, that the child is sacred, that the child is holy. Regardless as to whether he can champion the blat as quickly as others. Every nishama, every child is kodesh. Kodesh kadoshim, the holiest holies. So everybody's got a stake in it. The home and the yeshiva, but clearly the home has a greater stake than the yeshiva. And there's time that we have to spend with our children. You say, where am I going to get the time from? You know, I'm busy from morning to night, where am I going to get the time from? And I say, you don't have any option. The most precious thing that you've got is your, ch your children. You're going to have to find time to sit with your children, to talk with them, to know what's bothering them, to know how they're doing in school, to know who their friends are. To be able to ask them questions, to open up channels so that they feel comfortable in talking to you about everything. And say, I don't have time for it. And I say, yeah, get the president's room. The president's room? The story about the president's room is that a guy who was traveling along and he stopped off at a motel and the sign says, no vacancy. So he goes and he says, I want a room. They said, mister, didn't you see the sign says, no vacancy? He says, don't tell me that. There's 300 rooms in this hotel. He says, yeah, but they're all filled. There's no vacancy. He says, you mean to tell me that if the President of the United States came here, you wouldn't give him a room? He says, look, if the President of the United States came, yes, we'd find a room for him. He says, good. President does not come and give me his room. <laughs> yeah, we're busy, busy, busy. But some kind of emergency arose, we drop everything and run. Right? We'll use the time that, or Hashem, that that emergency didn't happen. Time to be able to spend with your kids. And to get to know them. And let them know that you're interested in everything that they're doing. There's no simple solutions, my friends. You want simple solutions? I'm sorry to disappoint you. But if we recognize that we have to deal with these problems, that they are as serious as I said in this letter that I read to you, is just one of thousands and it doesn't stop with the pornography. It goes on to very lewd sexual uh, relationships. And it's a slippery slope. Once the person looks at pornography and he knows that he's lost connections with Hashem because of what he's done, that anything can happen, and it does. So I guess we have to face the gravity of the problem. And we have to know that the problem, that the solution 
is, has to begin with us as models. Us as models, no shortcuts. Right. Yeah, kissing the mezuzah is wonderful, it's not enough. So my friends, I, uh, glad to see that you didn't run out because I didn't have any malachim to bring you back. But uh, I wish I could have been the bearer of good tidings to tell you that there's easy ways to deal with this. Do this, do A, B, C, D, E. Unfortunately, it's not there. It's with us. The first beginning of Vishalhar. Right? Every move I make, right? every move I make is being watched. The great Rabbi Yachanan Bezakha, the greatest of the greatest, before his death, his disciples asked him for guidelines. And he said, let the fear of God be as important to you as the fear of every other human being. They said, this is what you're telling us? He said, yeah. A person will behave differently if he sees somebody's watching me. But he's not too worried about the fact that Hashem is watching him. So there's so many things that we have to do. So many things have to do to raise the level of Kedusha of our life in every way possible. I hope I've impressed upon you. My great fear is that by Thursday morning you will have forgotten it. You can't afford to. The things that are dearest to us, our children, are in a very precarious position. And unless we make the necessary changes, we may lose that which is most precious to us. So Hashem shall give us siyata dishmaya, Hashem shall give us all the help, and uh, allow us to raise children, to be spirit, physically, spiritually, emotionally healthy, and to give us the nachas, the true nachas that you all deserve. Thank you for listening. Have I turned to be glad to take questions? After that, we're going to dive in the mark. I don't remember saying I'd be glad to take questions. I said, <laughs> I said if there's any questions, I'll try to answer it. Yes, sir. Say it very loud. Sure. So, uh, we talked about the internet filters on the computer, and if you're Letting aside the fact that elementary school children probably, letting aside the fact that elementary school children probably, in my humble opinion, do not need cellular telephones, but that's probably for a different discussion. Um, when they do have them, what do you recommend to parents who believe that they do not need picture texting and they don't need the internet access and all the rest of the children in their class do have it? And this is the fact, unfortunately. I don't understand why. It is a fact, and it makes for a very difficult uh, raising of the children and very difficult discussions. I hear. I hear. You know, one of the most greatest things that ever happened to me was that uh, I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the early 1930s. Uh, I was the only Shomer Shabbos, only Shomer Shabbos child in the Jewish community. I had no Shema Shabbos friends. I had payas, not long ones, but I had payas. And I went to public school. There was no day school. 
And the kids used to make fun of me. And what was good about that? Because I knew from then on in I was different. And I think we have to teach our children right, that each of us has a right to be different. And that we should not be swayed by what's going on. Peer pressure is enormously difficult. I'm not minimizing it all. But when my father used to tell me, you're too good for this. And we have to find ways of teaching our children how precious they are to us and that they are special. And other kids may be very fine children, but I want to protect you from things that are dangerous to you. Now, it's not going to be easy because the peer pressure is hard. But I think that if a child genuinely can feel the parent's attitude and can feel the kedusha in the home, I think there's a chance, there's no foolproof, I think there's a chance of now. I agree, maybe it isn't necessary for uh, kids to have uh, cell phones, but it's very hard because they have to be in contact with their parents. Uh, and this, ever since this 9-11 uh, and all kinds of terrorists happened, there's an anxiety about losing contact with the child. Okay, I, can, I, I have to make peace with that. But uh, I think parents should make it very clear. Yeah. There are kinds of things that we, I don't believe that you should have, even if, even if other children have it. Yeah. It's, a, it's a tough sell, but I don't think we have a choice. Thank you again, Phil.